Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Mabel came to me and she said, my spouse never asked for forgiveness. How am I to respond? Well, that is a whopper of a question. And so what I want to do over the next few minutes is I want to share with you what I shared with Mabel. Now, you can pretend that maybe you're Biff, and it is Mabel who never asked for forgiveness. And how are you, Biff, to respond? It really doesn't matter who the gender is, or yeah, who the gender is. Uh, this applies to either one. Now, maybe you're not married at all, and you're just in a relationship like this, and it's not it's not a comfortable relationship, but you really love the person, and you just wish that they would meet you halfway when it comes to resolving conflict. But in Mabel's case, that's not true. And so she came to me and she exclaimed, she said, I'm frustrated. I'm always approaching my husband with my sin, asking for his forgiveness, but he seems never to see his need to ask me for forgiveness. I mean, many times he won't even bother to forgive me. What am I to do? How can I respond to him when he shows like no interest in working with me through our problems? Now, the truth is, is that Mabel's complaint is not unusual in a relationship, whether the people are married or otherwise. Her situation is probably the norm. And one of the reasons for that is because people do not mature equally. We are unique, and even in a one-flesh union, there are differences between men and women and husbands and wives, and there, is, there are differences in our sanctification growth in Christ. We're not moving at the same pace. And so what I want to do is I want to share with you what I told her, and so I'm going to give you a counseling session. I hope it will help you to think through the inequity in a relationship specifically in the context of a person who is ready to repent and walk through whatever's wrong with them, but the other person is not meeting them halfway. Now, as I said, that you can switch genders in this case study that I'm going to share with you, and that would be just fine because the genders don't matter. I'm just sharing this from Mabel's perspective because she is the one that asked me. But hey, if you're Biff and Mabel is the one that's not meeting you halfway, everything that I'm going to share here will apply to you too, Biff. Hello, everybody. This is Rick Thomas at lifeovercoffee.com. That's the street address, and it will take you right to our coffee shop. Our coffee shop is like a big box store in cyberspace, and it is full of all sorts of resources on sanctification that are absolutely free to you. If you like to read stuff, we have a lot that you can read Actually, it would take you years to navigate through our coffee shop just reading. For those of you who want to watch videos, we have over 1,000 videos that you can watch. By the way, there's over one. Th actually, there's over 1,500 podcasts for those of you who want to listen. We believe at Life Over Coffee that any two people can resolve their problems 
over coffee, where we bring hope and help to you and others. We we create resources that spark conversation for transformation. By the way, if you would like one of these gorgeous mugs here so you can do Life Over Coffee officially, then all you have to do is contact us because we do have merch and we would love to connect you with one of these nice mugs. We also have these excellent Yetis here with our mark on it, and it says conversation, uh, Conversations for Transformation, and these are excellent Yetis. I've been using this one for months. It's the only Yeti that I will use now. And so if you want to do Life Over Coffee the right way, then just go down to the footer of any page on our website, get in touch with us, and we'll be glad to let you know how you can do Life Over Coffee officially. Now, if you want to read what I'm sharing with you, then please do. The title of it is My Spouse Never Asked for Forgiveness. How am I to respond? Head over to the coffee shop and you can search something like that in the search box and you'll be just fine. You will find it and you can read watch it, or listen to it. Now, there is always a smell of death to our most complicated questions because to walk well with God in his world, there is a call to die to ourselves. I mean, how could it be any other way? Living among the walking dead is not always is um, not always complicated in some areas of our lives, but it can be pretty challenging in other situations. And when there is sin, there will be ancillary problems that need our utmost care. Most of the tight spots where dying to yourself is hard is in our most meaningful relationships. And part of the problem will always be relationship inequity, as I was sharing earlier. Everybody is at a different place. And we just have to keep this in mind. It is so easy to map our experience over others, and we expect them to be as we are, to be in the same spot with God as we are, have accomplished the same things, appropriated grace over stuff that we used to struggle with, but we don't struggle anymore, but they do. Each person has a unique way of seeing things and responding to them. For example, parenting is a testing ground where one child progresses well while the other does not. All parents know this who have two or more children. And marriage is another testing ground where being different can cause conflict. So thinking biblically about our differences while learning to respond like Jesus to those who are not like us is well worth our consideration. And so I want to provide you with three ideas that I told Mabel And then I'm going to add four other tips up under those three ideas that I hope would help her as she reflects on Christ and and how she can be Christ to Biff. Now, I I do not assume that you are married. You're listening, watching this. I don't assume that your situation is exactly like hers. And so if it serves you, then do. I mean, just change tweak what I'm sharing with you, adapt it to what you need so that these concepts will aid you in your most vital relationships. Now, if you are Biff, and if Mabel is the stubborn one, or if Mabel is the oblivious one about the needs in the marriage, well, you know what to do. 
Just make those adjustments while asking God to provide you, Biff, with the wisdom and the courage to be Jesus to your Mabel. All right, so here are the three things that I ask Mabel to think about. The first one is, is Biff illuminated? Now, what I mean by that, is he born again? Has the Spirit of God penetrated his psyche and regenerated his soul? Is the light on? Now, I'm not saying this cynically. I'm not saying this assuming that he's not born again. Uh, But I'm also, I wasn't born yesterday, and neither were you. And it's a possibility that there is no light on inside, that he is not illuminated. Now, I'm sure that you have considered the condition of Biff's soul. But I would like for you to consider why he did not ask you for forgiveness. I mean, perhaps you live in a Christianized community or you're part of a local church. What do you think his lack of asking for forgiveness means? I mean, there can be a difference between doing Christian things and being a Christian. And if you live in a predominantly Christian culture or belong to a local church, we can just kick our brains into neutral and just assume that the person is born again. If he's not a Christian... There is no way he can ask you for forgiveness that will be adequate, consistent, and or transformative. To know that you've sinned and to be motivated to remove your sin, that is a spirit-led, spirit-illuminated, spirit-empowered gift. Even a non-Christian can premeditate and act out choreograph responses that look like a believer is he if he has time to think and to plan and and to implement a christianized response and that's one of the dangers of living in a christianized culture is that you can learn the techniques you can learn the words you can mimic the behaviors and of course if you have time to really think about what you're doing because you realize that You need to control your words and actions and reputation. And so there are two crucial areas to consider when thinking about whether a person is a Christian or not. One are those spontaneous moments in his life where he's caught by surprise. And the second is how he lives when nobody is looking. Let's take a look at those surprise moments where he can't choreograph, premeditate, or script his behaviors, where he doesn't have time to control his thoughts and words and actions. During those surprise moments when something sneaks up on him, we have to reflex quickly without considering how we might look to others. These unannounced instances do not matter to the Christian. Because, see, a Christian can keep in step with the Spirit. And as you keep in step with the Spirit, you are under the Spirit's management each moment, second of the day. Nobody ever caught Jesus off guard. He was under the influence of the Spirit. He walked in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. He was influenced by the Spirit rather than his his fleshly desires. And so one of the things that you could do is observe Biff's behavior in those moments where he is surprised by something, what comes out of his mouth. He didn't have time to premeditate, script, choreograph what he was going to say. That could give you a clue as to who he is because our words come from our hearts. And if our hearts have not been transformed, those surprise moments can be quite revealing. Number two, there is a difference difference between our public and private lives. We are tempted to let down our guards when the world is not watching. 
There is no craving for favorable opinions or fears of rejection when nobody is watching. We relax. We live in harmony with who we really are. And so as I give you these three things to think about, I'm going to give you some question sets that I trust will help you to think through each one of these things that I'm suggesting. And the first one is, is he illuminated. And I talked about discerning those surprise moments where he is unguarded and he communicates who he really is in those moments of surprise. And I ask you also to consider uh, the if there's any discontinuity between his public life, his public persona, and his private persona. Here are your questions under this section. Is he illuminated? How do you know he's a Christian? How do you know that he is a Christian? Explain yourself. If Jesus were sitting to your right, would you just look over to Jesus and say, Jesus, Biff is a Christian, and here's all the reasons I know why. Number two, what is he like in those private moments when it's just you and him? Number three, how does he respond when surprised? What are some of the first things that come out of his mouth? And then number four, what are his sensitivity levels of morality? What I mean is, has his conscience been growing harder and harder and harder or softer and softer throughout your marriage? Is he illuminated? How do you know? Number two, is he ignorant? The Ethiopian in Philip's day did not understand God's word. He was ignorant. He needed guidance. The Bible speaks about the value of teachers, and Philip was one to this man. And so he crawled up into the chariot and he began to explain Isaiah 53 to the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe the light of the Spirit is turned on in Biff's psyche, but Biff does not know how to repent. Or nobody ever taught him the importance of confession and forgiveness. Practicing the skill of repentance is not universally understood within the Christian community. I mean, Christians regularly say unkind things to each other on social media while never returning to ask for forgiveness. 30 minutes on any social media platform would support this claim. I have discovered that most Christian couples that I have counseled do not know how to practice repentance. When I ask them to walk me through what repentance looks like in their marriages, nearly all of them return blank stares like a cow staring at a new gate or they stumble through some apology process with no redemptive force? Will he say, I'm sorry for things he does wrong, and does he leave it at that, or does he step into a forgiveness process? Well, you've already said that he doesn't, but does he even say that I'm sorry? Does he know how to ask you for forgiveness? Again, this is under the rubric of, is he ignorant? Does he know how to ask for forgiveness? It's an honest question. Has he ever asked someone else to forgive him? Because if there is a disparity or a discontinuity between his public persona, his private persona, and in public, he asks people for forgiveness, but in private, he does not. Well, it could be that he's not a Christian, and this is performative in public. But in reality, he's not born again. Has he ever asked someone to forgive him? And then the last question under this set, can he walk you through the process of repentance? Is he ignorant? 
Could be. He just needs to be discipled well. Is he insecure? This is the third thing that I told Mabel. Is he eliminated? Is he ignorant? Is he insecure? Fear of others is real. It is most acute around people that we know best, those where the need for vulnerability is most sensitive. You see, it's easier to be transparent and honest with strangers. People we may never see again typically are risk-free relationships, and so we can say, you know, virtually anything because we're not going to see them in Walmart next week or we're not going to live with them. Online communities are like this, so a person can communicate more in a community like a social media platform than in-person relationships. Shame, guilt, vulnerability, honesty, transparency, they are a part of the human complexity that needs constant mortification to have redemptive relationships. I mean, men may appear to have a tougher-looking facade, and, and they may know how to present hardness and aloofness and having it all together, but the truth is we are all weak clay jars. We're all vulnerable. I mean, it's not like Eve got more shame, more guilt, more fear than Adam. No, sin came upon all people equally and without measure. Adam penetrated, permeated, and perplexed your husband's inner person. It could be that he knows what to do, but his high estimation of himself keeps him from lowering himself to a place to where he can humbly ask for forgiveness. I'm asking you, is he insecure? Here's your question set. In what ways have you observed his insecurity? Two, how does he appear stronger and more fabulous or better than others, looking at that discontinuity between public persona and private persona? Number three, how does he think about and guard his reputation? And then finally, number four, what areas have you seen where he has been humble and has been open and vulnerable? And so those are the three questions that I ask Mabel. Is he illuminated? Is he ignorant? Is he insecure? And then under each one, I ask her four questions to tease those three categories out to try to understand why this man never asked for forgiveness. Now, in addition to those three things, I gave Mabel four considerations, because I want her to examine herself as well. I've been around long enough to know that, that no two people in a relational conflict where it's 100% a person's fault and the other person is 0% guilty. That's not how it works. Now, I don't know what the percentages are and really don't care, but I know that there is a mixture where both are innocent and both are guilty to varying degrees, and so it would be unfair. I would be wrong not to present, say, hey, maybe there's some things about you that you need to consider, and so without judgment or accusation, but using discernment, if you really want to work through this problem, then there has to be more examination than just the other person on the other side of the fence. And so I've spent time addressing Biff's speck that is in his eye. Now let's spend some time examining the log. In your eye, 
And so I have four questions for you, Mabel. The first one is, are you doing what you can? Now, under each one of these questions, I have a verse for your consideration as well. In Romans 12, 18, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Are you doing what you can? I'm not saying that with suspicion. I'm just asking a genuine, sincere question, not uploaded with any judgment whatsoever. I call Paul's verse in 1218 the 50% verse. He asked us to do everything we can and, and what is biblically expected regarding conflict resolution. You can't do everything for Biff, and you shouldn't do everything for Biff, but you must do as much as it depends on you. Now, by the way, reaching out to others is one of those things that depends on you. I mean, it can be helpful when stuck in relational conflict. Don't hold back from seeking help. Do everything that depends upon you. God did not intend our journey to be isolated. And if you have followed Matthew's template for restoring someone in Matthew 18, and he is not changing, then pray about where you can find help. No wife is biblically bound to submit to a sinful husband in every way. God has not called you to be a doormat to him, nor has he called you to be his authority. Your co-laborers, presumably spiritual brother and sister, unbiblical submission or unbiblical authority, it does not leave you without options. You may need to go outside and above his authority to find another biblical authority to help your marriage. Are you doing everything that depends upon you? Here's some questions to consider. Are you doing all you can? Number two, how do you know? Number three, what hinders you from seeking outside help? Number four, do you have a close friend who can offer wise and courageous biblical perspectives about you? The second of four questions that I ask, Mabel, are you assessing yourself? The text I'm thinking about is 1 Timothy. Paul said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Love the King James here. I am the chief. A sober self-assessment of all the aspects of your life is essential when thinking about helping difficult people. You see, Paul said in Galatians 6.1 that you are to restore difficult people in a spirit of gentleness keeping watch on yourself so that you too are not tempted. Paul never got over the fact of his total depravity. Now, he didn't wallow in his depravity by practicing a woe-is-me mindset. There was no inhibition in reminding himself of what he used to be. He never got away from what he used to be, even though he didn't wallow in what he used to be. To hear this in his language, you hear this in his language to the Corinthians, that he recognized that he was the chief of sinners, and if you are the foremost sinner, you can talk to nasty, difficult, hard-headed people like the Corinthians, and you can have affection for them because you know that you're the biggest sinner in the room. 
from your perspective. And so he carried those Corinthians in his heart as he continually thanked God for them, as you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And though they may have been the most difficult Christians in his life, you can actually feel his love for them as he opened his first letter to them. That attitude is what you want for your husband. Now, I know that he has sinned against you, but there is a more significant issue in play here. He put Christ on the cross. His sin against you is nothing compared to his sin against Christ, which is the ground-leveling truth because you did too, and so did I. The cross of Christ is the human equalizer where all of our badness, and by the way, according to Isaiah, all of our goodness means absolutely nothing compared to what we did to Christ. And so I'm asking you about a sober self-assessment. Here's your question set. How does your attitude objectively and daily reflect that, uh, that you are for your husband, like Paul was for the Corinthians? If you understand that you're the biggest sinner in the room, then it is easy to be for other fellow sinners because you recognize that anything that you have received was a gift given to you as we do not earn these wonderful things that we are wherever we are. We are by the grace of God. From your perspective, do you consider him a bigger sinner? Now, by the way, your day-to-day thoughts, attitudes, and words and behaviors or where you will find the answer to this question. As you examine your thoughts about Biff, your attitudes toward him, your words directed at him, and your behaviors, all of those things collected will tell you who you believe the biggest sinner in the room is. Number three, describe your prayers for him. Does he feel your affection for him? If Biff does not feel your affection for him, then it's time to go back into your closet and ask God to give you affection for him. Because if you don't have affection for a person that you are confronting, they're going to know that. And your lack of affection is going to obliterate whatever confrontation that needs to happen in his life. Finally, does Christ work in your life, have more control over you than anything that Biff is doing to you. The third thing that I ask Mabel is, are you practicing God's kindness? The text of scripture is Romans 2.4. Paul said, do you presume? Do you take for granted on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God gave us what we did not deserve. Rather than heaping wrath on our lives, He motivated us to change by His kindness. Mercy drew us out of darkness. The Lord heaped riches upon riches on us, and He has not stopped since the first time we repented at salvation. Paul gives us a short list of God's riches that he used to help us change. Kindness, forbearance, patience. By the way, you could read 1 Corinthians 13, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, and and just see more riches that God heaps upon us. God desires to encourage us rather than critique us to the point of deflation. 
I've already made a case for identifying your husband's problems, and I, I ask you to find out outside help. I'm not ignoring his pile that is in the middle of the room, but the issue that I have in view here is not finding fault in him at this point, but being a means of grace that encourages him toward change, which is why one of my earlier questions was about whether or not you are for him. You should overlook his sin as much as you can. Here's some questions under uh, this section about motivating him. What does he experience the most from you, your encouragement or your discouragement? Question number two. Are you quicker to see what he does wrong or right? Number three, when was the last time you encouraged him? Explicitly, what did you say to him? And then number four, have you gossiped about him or said any other unkind thing to others about him? And this, this is the fourth thing that I said to Mabel. Are you waiting for the gift? Are you waiting for the gift of repentance? Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant, let's say it this way, Mabel must not be quarrelsome. Mabel must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting her opponents with gentleness. God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Are you waiting for the gift of repentance? I have occasionally thought about what it would be like to have the ability to make people change, like on the spot. But I always come back to the wisdom in accepting my finitude. The power of repentance needs to rest in the hands of someone a bit more omniscient than I am. And by the way, more loving than I am. At times I fail in knowledge and love. And though I'm okay with being unable to grant repentance, I struggle with submitting my expectations about others to God, specifically when I expect people to be a certain way and they do not meet my expectations right now. My response at that moment will tell you what controls me. I'm either submitted to God and His sovereignty as I wait for the gift, or I'm submitted to my expectations and they control me. Whatever controls you will be your functional God. Because Jesus tied our hearts to our treasures. One of the most effective ways to find out what your treasure is will come in the moments of your disappointments, especially your recurring disappointments. When a lack of change in someone conflicts with your desire for a better kind of response from them, you'll have to decide what will have the most power over you. And that kind of tug of war of the heart was going on with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he really oscillated between your will and my will be done. Now eventually he settled in. Lord, may your will be done. Here's your questions under this section. Are you waiting for the gift of repentance? Whose will will have the most power over you, your husband's will, your will, or God's will. Number two, do you know how to appropriate God's grace while waiting for his hopeful repentance? Number three, what things have you learned about your faith through this marriage disappointment? 
because you know that God can multitask. And it could be that God is withholding repentance from Biff because he's teaching you some things that you have yet to learn and apply. Number four, how are you forfeiting, uh, how are you fortifying your soul for the potential of a lack of change in your husband's life? Because we know that that is a possibility. It's not granted, it's not assured that Biff will ever change because everybody doesn't change. And so it could be that God never grants repentance at all. I'm not trying to be a downer here, but it is a biblical reality, and I think intuitively at some level of our hearts we know that. What I've just shared with you is titled, My Spouse Never Asked for Forgiveness. How am I to respond? I gave three considerations about Biff, and then I gave four questions that Mabel really needs to ask herself so that we can do both, examine the speck and examine the log. Here is your CTA. I have given you several questions to work through as you think about your spouse. And so I don't really have any questions in this call to action, except will you take all of the questions that I've asked you? There's probably more than, than 20 of them. There were four uh, question sets. There were seven, uh, seven, 14. There were 28 questions that I asked you. That's a lot. Will you take all of them to the Lord and be brutally honest with Him? And then afterward, will you share your thoughts and the questions with a true friend while appealing to your friend to be compassionately and courageously frank with you? You have 28 questions to examine the speck and the log. Now, let me return to the opening statement where Mabel said, I am frustrated. While it would be great to categorize frustration as righteous anger, that would probably not be the whole truth. Mabel, you cannot stay where you are. Your husband may never change, but you must. And perchance he never changes, you need help so that your walk with Christ is not negatively affected by his lack of change. And so I want you to talk to your friend about these things. Now, if you want to read what I just shared with you, go to lifeovercoffee.com. Step inside our coffee shop. You're looking for this. My spouse never asks for forgiveness. How am I to respond? Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.